Hello and welcome to episode two of the TLF Gems podcast, uh, a podcast from TLF Research about customer experience and insight. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. Today we're going to look at chapter two of the book, Customer Satisfaction, the customer experience through the customer's eyes, that snappy little title. <laughs> and um, chapter two is very much about the benefits of customer um, satisfaction. In the first podcast, we looked at, at some of the myth busting and whilst there are still a couple of myths that will be busted in this chapter, it's very much more looking at the positive side, the benefits of it. And fundamentally, I think this goes right back to the, the free market premise that, you know, doing things that people like, making people happy, making people satisfied, who have free choice, is a good and positive, a good and positive thing. It, it is, and it, I suppose you can argue it stands to reason, doesn't it, that... You know, we, we as businesses obviously need customers. Customers presumably seek out the things they like and avoid the things they don't like. And therefore, uh, as the first paragraph of the book or the chapter rather points out, um, it, it logically follows that the sorts of businesses which, which make their customers feel good should be having more and more customers. And the sorts of businesses that make their customers feel bad should have fewer and fewer customers. One, one question I wanted to raise, Greg, is... The book talks about this idea, this sort of classic mini-maxing idea of economics, um, Adam Smith and all that, that, that customers will you know, maximise their utility, getting the greatest benefit for the least possible cost. And it's not, I think, that that's wrong, but I think there is quite a lot of evidence from psychology and behavioural economics that we're closer to satisficers than mini-maxers. In, in other words, we'll, we'll get maximise our benefit versus cost when it's relatively easy for us to do so but when it's a difficult decision when there's not very much perceived differentiation we'll quite often settle for good enough um, and I can't help wondering if that's where quite a lot of customers are in quite a lot of markets. Yeah that that, that makes um, an awful lot of sense I think there's a couple of things that sort of spring to mind where, when you talk about that um, particularly if we look at clients who are in utility sectors or don't have a lot of product differentiation perhaps on the banking the insurance um, and, and just inevitably people are very interested in their own business and customers are not quite as interest, interested in their business but I think that moves to the word when you said like effort or ease and I do think that's part of the attraction of the sort of the latest kid on the block in terms of you know customer effort score or an ease score because I think it is inevitably appealing to people if you're not trying to make them happy or the degree in which you're going to make them happy, which I think we can talk about in a bit. Um, you definitely want to make it easy for people because people like doing things that are easy, perhaps even if it isn't maximising the benefit to to them. It's the, root of, it's the root of least resistance. You know, How long do we spend phoning around to get the perfect insurance quote? You know, If you think of the time versus effort equation there, you know, and where the sort of the, the search engines and the price indicators are, have, have come in, they are really prying on that ease function, I think. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes down to how you think about the cost part of that, you know, benefit divided by cost equation. Um, because a lot of that cost, I think, is, is sort of mental cost, the mental effort of, of choosing and, you know, going to the trouble of figuring out what the best solution is. Uh, I think it... Naively, people sometimes think that offering customers lots of choices is a good thing, 
Uh, I think anyone who's who's spent any time with customers or talking to customers realizes quite quickly that actually choice is often a bad thing um, because it because it creates effort. Um, so it, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is not so much that that I think the minimaxing idea is wrong, but that I think you have to be a bit nuanced in your way of thinking about it. So it's not necessarily the organizations that create the best products and services that will thrive it's the ones that make it easiest to, to use your point about mm. ease and effort easiest for customers to get something that they feel is good enough for them uh, at the time and, and that's really what i think customer satisfaction is doing best what matters most to customers sure um, part of what matters most is making it easy for me to get something that works so how do we compare that to like B2B? So B2C, that, you know, it, it is it's very obviously sort of ease. But if you think of B2B, where there will be procurement involved, vendor rating systems, matrix scores, you know, there is a whole science there in terms of trying to evaluate the benefit versus cost. What's, what, what, what's your views that on, Stephen, in terms of, the effort that's put in, in, in you know, into that and, and how that's different B2B to B2C. I think it, 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 there is some truth in the idea that, that, that B2B procurement is, is more, if you like, rational. You know, it is more a sort of classic, you know, homo economicus, yes. Adam Smith type, <laughs> type decision process. But at the end of the day, people are people and the people making those decisions have their own little mental accounting of benefits versus costs. Um, and, you know, the benefits might be how risky is it that this might go wrong and I look stupid or how well do I get on True. with this person who's come in to sell to me or how much work is it going to be for me to turn this proposal into something that fits our matrix. Mm -hmm. All those kind of human uh, factors are definitely still there in, in decisions. However, however sort of, you know... Uh, auditable the matrix is at the end of the day <laughs> people have made those decisions and, and people are always um, less rational than we'd like to believe yeah i mean and that's talking about it from the consumer or from the customer point of view i i, I think the interesting bit about the opening bit in that chapter is you know really how how satisfied do we as organizations or as businesses want to make customers do we want to make them really satisfied, you know, as satisfied as they can be, world-class levels of customer satisfaction? Or do you think that just takes too much time, too much effort, or too much cost? Because we certainly see with some of our clients, once they start getting up the lead table a little bit, and they start saying, well, is it worth getting any higher? It's an interesting one. I was going to raise that later, later in the discussion, actually, but I... I think there's a really interesting question that's, that's often built in as an assumption. So pe people will say, is it worth investing in getting higher levels of customer satisfaction? And, and sort of implicit in that is the idea that having higher customer satisfaction is going to cost. Yeah. Now, it may or may not pay off in, in terms of a return on that investment, but there will be a cost of it. I'm not sure that's always true. Um, obviously, we can think of examples when it is. So... If I'm a manufacturer and, you know, the, the thing that's going to really improve my customer satisfaction is maybe lead times. And I could do that by investing in a whole new fleet of trucks. That's obviously a massive outlay. And 
that I could approach in a very sort of rational, uh, you know, cost-benefit way as a business. Is it worth investing in this new fleet yeah. of trucks and what will the payoff yeah. be in terms of customer side and so yeah. on? I think very much the same about some of the highly personalised services where you know, used to hear the stories about the hotel that would remember your favourite wine mm. and things like, like that. So there probably is a little bit of a, you know, a market, you know, a market there at that extreme end mm. where a lot of cost could mm. be put into it. Yeah. I suppose the flip side then is, are there cases, and I'm going to argue that there are, um, where actually improving customer satisfaction is going to save the business money rather than cost it money? Um, and a, a fairly obvious example of that kind of thinking is, well, if we can, if we can uh, anticipate and prevent complaints, yeah, that's going to take out a big amount of cost coming into the business. It's going to make customers happier. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of classic win-win where it genuinely is better for everyone if we can prevent these problems happening in the first place or certainly you know, picking them up as quickly as possible and preventing them from, from escalating into complaints. I think there is, it very much varies from, from business to business and market to market um, whether, or where those effects kind of cross over. Yeah. Um, I would say for almost every business you can get to pretty high levels of satisfaction for very little investment. Uh, almost always what we find when we, we, we do a customer satisfaction survey, a client comes out perhaps mid-table, they have a satisfaction index of you know, 78 or 80. They usually have a smallish number of really obvious priorities for improvement where really it isn't going to cost a lot of money to fix those things. It, it, you're doing some fairly stupid things wrong and, and you can stop doing those stupid things. I I often find as well, those things are already known about in the organisation. They know there is an issue in that. I think the, the impact that we make is we start putting a figure on it and people see the amount of dissatisfaction, the amount of cost. The, you know, it gets measured and suddenly the severity of it. We knew customers didn't like X, Y and Z, but we didn't realise it was causing this much dissatisfaction this many problems this many complaints and how they would spend more with us if we eliminated that I, I think we often just provide the measurement element to that gut feeling that that's mm -hmm. you know pretty clued up people have in the business anyway absolutely yeah so yeah I think um, we'll maybe come back to that discussion a bit later on but I, I think that idea of is it necessarily a cost customer satisfaction um, that you even need to think about are we getting enough return for I don't think it always is. Sometimes it is, and, and then it needs to be addressed you know, in, in a sort of grown-up business way. Yeah. Just my, my sort of last bit on, on that is, as you said, I think it's very bespoke for individual companies, dependent on what the product is, the customer base, and all that sort of thing. And certainly with a couple of clients, we've worked out a little bit of a cliff edge. Um, one has, the, they call it the magic 90, which when they get the index over 90, they certainly see a change in behaviour. And keep in mind that you know, people aren't perfect, you know, but that they see perhaps, for example, that if customers have an index over 90%, two thirds of them will recommend. They all won't, because they all can't. Um, so they, they can see the advantage of moving. For every three customers they can move over 90, two out of those three will recommend, and they can put a benefit on you know on that so being able to sort of look at, at, at the figures across the spectrum of, of, of the index and see where that 
what, what's the opposite of a cliff edge? A launch pad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where that where that launch pad is, I think really sort of helps rather than just chasing some fantasy you know, that we will achieve 100% yeah. satisfaction, which just is not true ever. Agreed, yeah, no, and it, it is essentially impossible to get to 100%, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, it's a good point about the cliff edge, and I think you know every business should should look at its own relate the relationship to whatever outcome it thinks is is valuable to it as a business and satisfaction to look for those to where those sort of cliff edge um, shapes are. Yeah, and that that's the logic that underpins net promoter score. I was going to say that, which, which is quite yeah. interesting, and it's it isn't always there, frankly, but but when it is, it's a very powerful effect, and and it, it makes a lot of sense then to say how can we. How can we make sure as many customers as possible are on the right side of that cliff edge? I think Net Promoter's really added to that debate because it's it's got people saying, hold on, how do we move a detractor to a passive mm. and passive, you know, to, you know, you know, to, to to advocates, and often mm. the answer to those two things are very different. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of, of what, what one of the things that, that we talk about, you know, you know, in the book, in terms of establishing value, we talk about customer lifetime value. How much is a customer worth over a lifetime? Going right back to Domino's pizzas and how, you know how you get employees to behave, you know, and it looks at the cost of acquisition, profit, revenue, growth, cost saving, referrals, price premium, all all, all those sort of things. And I think I've worked with three or four organisations who've tried to look at this but it's a very difficult thing particularly once you start getting up the higher level of that to actually put a a monetary figure um Mm. on 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 those sort of loyalty behaviors i think partly because you don't see them and you don't know what they are Mm. um we did some interesting work on price premium how, how much were people willing to pay more for something they trusted compared to what they didn't trust and that figure was a lot higher than everyone else thought, and, and my sort of gut feeling on, on, on this is alone. I don't re- never really come across anyone who's done a really good sort of calculation of it. I suspect we all really undervalue it, and it is worth a lot more than we intuitively think. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think the and the book features a, a sort of graph taken from Fred Reichelt's book, The Loyalty Effect, um, and it. it it shows the sort of his his average calculation for how all those you know the the, the profitability of customers build up year on year, um, the longer you keep them. What he what, what he goes into in more detail in his book is how that varies from sector to sector and from company to company. And I think you know there are a few sectors where it's actually very flat and and basically profitability year on year remains fairly static. Um, it's still you know that still builds up. It's still worth keeping a customer. But um, but you don't see it building up in the, in the way that this model shows. Mm-hmm. But there are other industries where it it really quickly builds up, um, and I think well, insurance is probably quite a good example of that. But but there are, there are lots and lots of examples of where you, you you see increasing benefits for every year you keep the customer in terms of profitability, um, and that's something that. If you're just looking at your base profit, it's very easy to miss how important retention is as a kind of economic, um, you know, uh, <laughs> factor for your business. If you don't understand that that it isn't, it isn't sort of ten years times the base profit. It's an increasing profit over time in a lot of cases. I think um, 
B2B companies are quite good at understanding that. I mm. think often, you know, the cost of acquisition is very high and if there's the 80-20 Pareto effect of your customer base, mm. it's quite easy to get staff attuned to you know, customer satisfaction. Yes, is about doing best what matters most, comma, to those that matter most. And mm. there's certainly some customers who are more important and would have an impact on the business than some other yeah. customers. Well, I think for me, the really important thing about customer lifetime value is that it gives you a different lens to assess importance. Yeah. So, so rather than looking at revenue this year uh, or even profit this year, you can think about, well, how is, is this, the, if you understand through sort of segmentation, which are the sorts of customers that we make most money off in the long run? Um, then, then it justifies treating those customers, or A, getting hold of more of those types of customers, and B, treating those customers a bit better. Um, it's worth the investment in the first few years to make sure you keep hold of those customers because they're going to make you so much money in the long run. Um, and I think and the key phrase really is long-term versus short-term. That's customer lifetime value, when you've done the analysis, gives you the economic argument to support a long-term strategy uh, built on on finding loyal customers and keeping hold of them yeah um, and that's the real power of it if you don't have that it will have to be done on faith you, you can't yeah. prove it economically uh, and i think that's a weakness that a lot of businesses frankly struggle with because the economic arguments tend to be relatively short term it tends to be about next quarter's profits or next yeah. year's profits uh, perhaps even next month's profits depending who you are rather than how are we shoring up you know, a good supply of loyal customers for the future. Just to throw you a podcast curveball, one of the things in customer lifetime values is referrals and recommendations. Have you ever seen a decent referral re or recommendation scheme in existence? I'm struggling to think, think of some. The people who tend to be really good at that, I would say, are some of the more kind of subscription-based business models that are springing up online now. Um, so the likes of um, Harry's and um, yeah. those are the Dollar Shave Club, those sort of razor people, yeah. um, and and similar sort of you know like the, the the beer box subscription services, Grays, people like that. Yeah, those online subscription services absolutely have that referral kind of model built into True. how, how yeah. they grow their business. Um, so yeah, those are the people I think do it best. Yeah, the, the, in in some of the other market, it just seems I. I I think the gesture of giving a thank you is quite a good gesture, but I, I, I think it's a thank you rather than an incentive, I think would, 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 would be what I see. I think f fundamentally, probably what we've slightly skipped over is, you know, the benefits of customer satisfaction is it just makes your organisation better. <laughs> and, you know, and we're talking, you know, a lot about profitability here um, and... Um, and certainly there's lots of, you know, there's lots of evidence linking it into sort of shareholder value as well. We'll come to talk um, a little bit about not-for-profit organisations. Um, but there's only really sort of seems to be a lot of data at the macro level of linking mm. it into sort of shareholder value. You know, I know the, the UK Customer Satisfaction Index at the ICS do yep. did some really interesting things on if you invest in companies that have above average satisfaction you know, you will make money if you invest in those that have below levels of customer satisfaction. You will lose money. And I think there's some stuff from um, America as well, isn't there? Yeah, so uh, 
as the book um, mentions, the, the ACS, or the American Customer Satisfaction Index, did quite a lot of work linking you know, share prices to, to what was happening with the ACSI. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that has been updated bit, you know, periodically over the years since this book was written, which is, is quite a long time ago now. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, you know, that is something that, that the Institute of Customer Service regularly puts out in their executive summary um, uh, uh, for the UK Customer Satisfaction Index. Uh, and yeah, I think it, it feels right, it feels intuitive, and the data seems to support it, that yes, customer satisfaction in the long term will create a successful, healthy business. Yeah. Um, and it sort of stands to reason, really. Yeah. Um, One thing I was just going to comment on, Greg, while we're talking about the links to at that sort of macro level, is there was a definite trend when I sort of when I was relatively new to TLF. So in sort of the early two thousands, there was a lot of talk about the service profit chain and particularly service profit chain models and organisations like Sears, like the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, that had proven not just that there were links between employee satisfaction, customer satisfaction and profit, but but how strong those links were. So if we move employee satisfaction by 10%, customer satisfaction moves by 5% and profit goes up by 1% or or whatever. What, What strikes me is that when you look for examples of service profit chain models, you're still finding Sears and Canadian Imperial yeah. Bank of Commerce. <laughs> what, why have there not been more published models along those lines since since those days? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, do people put stuff in the public domain? You need to have a certain way. You need to have a lot of data to do mm. things and you need to have a lot of branches and a lot of information to, to, to sort of prove those models. But interestingly... Whilst there aren't models there, I think the thinking has evolved. You only need to think of Rich and Branston and you know treat your employees as customers and they'll look after um, you, you know your customers. The, the, the thinking has certainly sort of evolved, and, and we all you know know that to deliver world class customer satisfaction, you've got to have motivated, happy staff because otherwise they come across as the opposite when they're dealing with with customers and. Um, you know, and sometimes you even come across um, staff who sort of badmouth their organisation, mm. and you know, and that gives you a certain view as a, you know, a, you know, as a customer as well. But I really think, you know, particularly sort of first impressions, frontline staff, that whole sort of customer service ethos is is very underrepresented. That first impact that a positive member of staff can do, you know, given that they've got the right tools behind them and the support systems behind them you know can really make such a, a big impression that sort of puts a little bit of credit in the bank mm. and, and and we certainly see um from the mirror surveys that, that we do that the people who have the best understanding of customer satisfaction tend to be the ones who experience it most tend to be the frontline staff and those that tend to understand it less tend to be Either the internal staff, or you know, those that are higher up in the organisation that just don't get exposed to customers so much. One of the most powerful things I, I've seen is, is when there's been changes of chief execs, managing directors, you know, and they want to come to customer focus groups because they want to hear what customers think. And you can see people panic and think, "Oh, isn't a customer going to say something odd or unusual?" But you know, once you've listened to ten, twelve customers talk. You know what customers think. 
You do know what customers think. But yeah, I haven't seen any models around for ages. No, it, it does seem to have gone out of fashion, at least in this country. I, I, I think um, you do see more examples from, from the rest of Europe and um, whilst we're still in Europe anyway, uh, and from, from you know other places in the world. But, but it, it's just never something that's really been fashionable in the UK for some reason. Some of that's probably scale. So I, I think, and you mentioned the, yeah. the problem of getting hold of enough data. Um, you need units of analysis at which you can match employee, customer, and something financial, and, and that, you know, a bank in the UK has fewer branches than a bank in the states does, uh, yeah. and that is just a, a sort of fact. Um, I think the other thing is probably there are probably well, I know of some work that is not in the public domain that has been done, and, and I'm sure there's others that I don't know yeah. of. So I think there, that is a maybe maybe people are keeping these things to themselves rather than publishing them. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly hope there is lots of work out there within organisations, um, you know, even on top of what I do know about, because I think it's an important thing for businesses to think about, even even if they can't prove all the pieces, yeah. to do what they can to, to put some numbers on those links. Absolutely, absolutely. So it can make customers more profitable, or organisations more, more profitable, but, but what about sort of the non-for-profit you know sectors. You know why should they care about uh, making customers customers satisfied, Steve? Yeah. Well, and I guess the the, the first thing uh, I guess is a kind of moral or or kind of ethical purpose that, that that's what they should be doing. You know, customers. You know, they exist to do a good job for customers. Depending, you know, who, you know, the customers are taxpayers or um, you know, donors to a charity or volunteers for a charity, whatever it might be. That they, they they ought to be looked after. I think there is also a financial argument. So you can definitely make an argument in terms of the, the, all of the efficiency cost-saving arguments for why better customer satisfaction leads to better profits apply equally well in, in you know, non-private sector organisations. So you can, I think, fairly easily show that a happy customer is cheaper to serve. Yeah. Um, they're not complaining. They understand what they're supposed to do. Don't better. call in as much. All, in as much. Yeah. all of those things. So I, th- I think you know, there are sound financial reasons why customer satisfaction, at least at least to a point, you know, removing dissatisfaction, let's say, is clearly financially a good idea. Where it then becomes more interesting, I guess, is if you once you've got customers to to that sort of passive, if you like, level of yeah, it's okay. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to phone in. Is it worth the investment then to make them really wildly excited? Uh, I think it probably is, um, but that would be a, a more more nuanced question. Yeah, because I think often organisations like that are you know are set up, um, you know, for, for very good moral reasons and 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 the type of person it can employ can see it as a vocation. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're contributing to society. We're doing something good here. So I, th- I think. Once you can get the momentum going, the culture in those organisations, I think, are some of the best for really keeping it going because you're really fulfilling the internal customer desire of why I'm working for this organisation because I want to make my society better. I want to help people mm-hmm. and hold on. You know, this is how I can, you know, this is how I can do it. Yeah, I think my, which I'd agree, I'd agree with that. I think it's it's not exactly the flip side of it, but something that can correlate with that is a feeling that we know best. Um, right. And that's something that, with the best of intentions, I think, I think some some charitable organisations and some, you know, um, let's say in the social housing sector, a lot yeah. of organisations can easily fall into that way of thinking. Um, so 
we know better than our customers know what they should do. Yes. Uh, and that can that can lead to a sort of disconnect between how customers feel and what would what makes customers happy and what the organization sees as its purpose. Um, and and occasionally that might even be the right thing. This is this is where you know this stuff is complicated and, and I'm not sort of trying to say it's necessarily always doing what customers think you ought to do. Um, but I think there can be putting those organizations closer to their customers is as important in the public sector and in the charity sector as it is in the private sector. Yeah, I completely agree. And interestingly, that is you sometimes see that in the business environment. You go into a successful company that's been established a lot of years and you talk about this understanding what's important to your customers. And you can see the looks, well, hold on, we know what our customers want. We wouldn't be successful if, you know, if we didn't. You know, we know what's important to our customers. And I think that probably sort of pulls this chapter a little bit to the end and, and moves us on to sort of the next chapter. Well, we'll be looking at the sort of the the um, essentials in terms of the methodology, because it all starts with understanding your customers' needs, whether it's a housing association really listening to what its customers want, or it's a manufacturing financial service, whatever. It's really trying to listen to what their customers want. What is it they are trying to fulfil and seeing the world through their customers' eyes, which sounds like a really good title for a for a book. <laughs> Better than the subtitle we got on this thing, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well that's um, podcast number two finished. Um, we'll be back shortly with podcast number three, where we'll start moving a, a little bit into the more the sort of methodology, some of the academics, the right and the wrong ways to do sort of customer surveys to ensure the outcomes you get are practical, useful, and most importantly, actionable. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter at TLF Research. Cheers, everyone. Bye.